Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Nahum 1, 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Let's pray. Lord, you know the hearts of everybody listening today, God, who is here in person or maybe over the Internet or listening to a recording of this. Lord, um, I pray that you would prepare hearts to receive this word. God, this is a difficult book, but it is still part of your word. And all of your word is God-breathed. All of it is for the purpose of causing us to, to know how to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. So we take this small book and we thank you for it, Lord. And I pray for your anointing to be able to preach through it, God, in a way that will be relevant, that will have an impact in our lives, God, and will cause us to worship you in a greater measure. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Way back in 2001, there was a movie that came out. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings. Okay, so it came out in December, and Lisa and I are in Green Bay, and she's a Lord of the Ring fanatic. So she wanted to go see the movie. So we go to Green Bay, we see the movie, we get done with the movie, and we get out, and she said, well, what did you think? And I went, yeah, it's all right. And she goes, what? What didn't you like about it? I said, babe, that ending made no sense to me. I just felt so unsatisfied. And she looked at me and she goes, you know this is a trilogy, right? And I go, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> so I felt, I felt like, come on, you're leaving me hanging here. This is, this is totally, I, I don't like this. And as I was preparing this sermon, I thought of the same feeling that Jonah kind of left me in. Right? I kind of, you, you read through the book of Jonah and you get it, and you know, you get to the end and you go, really? He ends with a question and, you know, the whole city's saved. And what about Jonah? You know, I mean, Jonah was right. God had mercy. And boy, it sounded like a really cruel uh, city. And I felt kind of the same way. Like, you know, it, it didn't end right. It didn't seem. It, I, I felt, okay. Well, guess what? Nahum is the end. It's the sequel to the book of Jonah. Because what happened in 760 B.C., Jonah went to Nineveh to preach of their destruction unless they repented, and they repented, so God withheld his judgment. 120,000 people at least were saved. Well, now we're looking at 150 years after that occurred. Okay? And so what's happened is that this city of Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, it was the most powerful empire of the world at that time. And 150 years later, Nineveh is worse than what it was before Jonah preached to it. Some, as one scholar put it, Nineveh repented of repenting. 
And their sin was vile. It was like no ancient city in history. That's how it's described. They were worse when it came to sin and evil than before. Take a look. Here's the outline of this book, Nahum. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, principles of God's judgment. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, God's judgment against Nineveh. Chapter 2, the destruction of Nineveh. And finally, chapter 3, Nineveh's total destruction is irreversible. That's what we have. Now, this book was written somewhere between 663 to 612 B.C. And what we find is this, that there was no chance of repentance here. There's a a big difference between this book and the book of Jonah. Jonah had five Hebrew words of prophecy, whereas this book is all prophecy. And what we find is that God never sent Nahum to Nineveh. He sent no prophet. He sent no repent and you will be saved. Nothing. There was no chance for them to escape judgment. God had been patient for a long time, but he is a God of absolute justice. And what happened was, we'll learn that the lesson in this book is this, that there's an end to God's patience towards sin. It's that simple. There's an end towards God's patience towards sin. Take a look. Here's the verses in Nahum. Numerous verses. Chapter 1, verses 14. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Wow. Strong words from the living God towards the city. Chapter 2, verse 6. The river gates are opened and the palace melts away. Chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. 3.1. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. And then 3.19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Saying Their evil was so rampant that it was in the entire area, and there's nobody going to be grieving the fall of this city. This city is evil. As it says here, woe to the bloody city. Again, thinking about this, this is God's prophecy about this city. And the destruction of this 300-year-old empire and its capital city of Nineveh seemed totally unlikely. In part because of what Nineveh was. Nineveh was the largest city in the known world at that time. Take a... Just take this in when you think about this city. Here's a description of the city of Nineveh. It had walls eight miles around the city. The walls were 100 feet high, 10 stories. They were so wide that you could take three chariots side by side and race them. It had a moat around this city, 100 feet, 150 feet wide, and 60 feet deep. 
15 stories wide, six stories deep. And it had enough provisions within the city to withstand a siege for 20 years. You can see why the people in this city thought, ha, silly prophecy. Nobody's taking this city down. It's impossible. That can't happen. But God is sovereign over nature and over the nations. Before you know it, the Babylonians came and they put siege on this city. Surrounded it. And then something interesting happened. Okay? First I have to tell you what the Ninevites and the Assyrians believed. They had something in their ancient whatever prophecies, whatever they believed in, that the city of Nineveh, and possibly I think the Assyrian nation, would be destroyed with something that was flood-related. Okay? And so uh, they were a very proud nation. They were a nation that par- compared themselves to lions because they felt lions were the king of the beasts and they were badder than lions. That's why it's interesting to see here, and the sword shall devour your young lions. They had lions a lot on their, on their uh, different shields of armor and things like that. They related to the lions. And God is basically saying, you think this? I'm going to take it down. And you see, here's what happened. The Babylonians laid siege to this city of Nineveh. And then miraculously, there was a huge downpour of rain. So much so that the river that flowed through this city swelled and it started knocking down the walls. Look at the prophecy in 6.2.6. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. That's the power of our living God. The, the king of Nineveh knew that it was the end, so he gathered all his concubines, all his wealth, everything, and he sacrificed it before the Babylonians actually came in because he knew it was the end. Unbelievable. You see, God is sovereign over the nations. He is sovereign over nature. It is not about history recording what man has done. History is a recording of what God has done and is doing. It's about God. It's his story, not man's story. And in 612 B.C., this city was so completely destroyed that in 331 B.C., when Alexander the Great came through that area, he did not even know that there was a city there. That's how total the destruction was. And it wasn't until 1842 when Nineveh was finally discovered by archaeologists. Prior to that, people, scholars thought that Nineveh was actually not a real city. There was no evidence of it anywhere, that it was simply uh, mythological. And now today, on the site where this great city was that couldn't be penetrated, our fields, a water tower from a nearby village, a cemetery, and the city dump. See, God brought judgment. Took out that city, leveled it. A city that the people, the inhabitants of it probably thought, no, this this ain't nothing happening. Look at our walls. Nothing can break through this. God is sovereign. 
You see, again, the lesson of Nahum and the city of Nineveh is this, that there is an end to God's patience towards sin. There's an end. God's not just going to keep looking the other way. You know, patience that God displays in delaying the execution of His wrath upon evil, there's a purpose for that. There's a reason why God delays. There's a reason why God grants mercy for a season. It's the purpose of leading people to a place of repentance. That's why God delays. Take a look at God's Word again. Nahum 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He's saying, I'm going to be patient with sin. Okay, but I'm going to judge the guilty. It's coming. As Christians, we don't have to worry about that, but God will discipline us. I think sometimes we walk in sin. Oh, man, I've been walking in this sin for 10, 20, 15 years, whatever. God's not doesn't care. Look, at nothing's happened to me. It's a dangerous way to look at things. You won't receive God's wrath, but when God disciplines, it can be a hard deal. Look at this, Romans chapter 2, 4 through 5. Or do you presume that the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He's saying the reason God's not just bringing this heavy discipline or judgment if a person is lost is because He's hoping that they'll repent. There's, there's this sense that I'm going to give opportunity to repent. But because of your heart and the impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And you can continue to reject me. And you're building up wrath. And then 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Saying God is patient, but there's an end to his patience towards sin. He is slow to anger. And he is abundant in loving kindness. But do not interpret that as an indifference towards sin and evil. And it's so easy to do that. Well, I guess God doesn't care. Otherwise, all this evil wouldn't keep happening. We live in a world where it's just so crazy, isn't it? You think, when is it going to happen? When is, when is God going to judge this nation? You know, we're, we're, we're mutilating our children through gender reassignment. Children are being killed in the womb. We look the other way. We make the criminal the victim and the victim the criminal. We say, how long? You know, I don't want to live in a world where the one in charge doesn't care about sin and evil. I, I can't do that. Because what will happen is exactly what is happening. Sin and evil will just go, continue to increase because it's unhindered. How many times do we read over and over again that somebody was arrested and they just let them out and they commit another crime? And we look at it and we, just, it, we shake our heads. I, I want to be in a world where the one who is running the place, the, the God who is in charge, hates evil. He cares about it. He's not just looking the other way and saying, oh, well, yeah, it's just a little bit of evil. I want a God that, that He is going to judge justly. Because a judge that allows someone to violate the moral code without punishment 
are considered unjust. You know, somebody commits murder. And can you imagine if the judge would just say, yeah, he had a bad day, I'm going to let him out. What would that communicate to the family of the person who was killed? You didn't value their life. You didn't, it made no difference to you. And so what we see is God is, is, is judging. And His wrath, what God's wrath is, is this. It is His real emotional response to sin and evil. That's what God's wrath is. And it's a good thing. God's wrath means that He intensely hates everything opposed to His moral character and He will take action to correct it. And that has national and personal implications. Nationally, how can God continue to just look the other way? We say, but we're a Christian nation. We're a nation with Christians, is what we are. Okay? And there are all kinds of nations with Christians that live within them. You say, but boy, this just, are you saying this? I'm not prophesying that God's going to do this. What I am saying is that there are, we have turned our back on God as a nation. And our leaders don't care what God thinks. They look the other way. They're going to they're gonna do what is, you know, it, as it says in, in, in do what thou wilt, for that is the whole of the law. You know where that comes from? Do what thou wilt, for that is the whole of the law. That's the primary law in the Satanic Bible. That's an attitude almost that we have. Do what thou wilt, for that is the whole of the law. Do whatever you want to do. If, if it's good for you, that's fine. It doesn't matter. There's no right, there's no wrong, there's no whatever. And so we look at this and we see that, that God is not going to look the other way. He's not going to look the other way nationally. He's not going to look, look the other way personally for us. Yes, pray. We need to pray. We need to seek God. That the hearts of the people in leadership, God can turn them around just like that. I always think of Nebuchadnezzar. Always think of Nebuchadnezzar. World leader, mocking God. You know, all the things that he did. And God just brings him and says, all right, fine. And he brings him down on, literally on all fours. And he's like a wild animal for a while. And he comes to and he realizes, yeah, I'm not all it. There's a God. And God can do that today if he wants to. So pray and intercede. But know that God can't look the other way at all the evil and sin that this nation is doing and other nations, and not just America. It seems like a worldwide... Um, you know, they're all getting together to do it. It's just, it's, it's, it's amazing. So what happens is this, that a just God cannot leave guilty go unpunished. Yet this whole idea of wrath is really uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, when I think of attributes that I listed for my God, wrath is not on the top of the list. What about you? I mean, I kind of don't want that as part of who he is in one sense. Right? I, I'll take the love, and I'll take the forgiveness, and I like the mercy and the grace. Patience, boy, that's really high up there on that list. Wrath, not so much. Holiness, you know, I mean, he's holy, and that's part of the reason why. You know, holiness is actually, I call holiness is God's attribute of attributes. Because everything flows from his holiness. In other words, he has holy wrath. He has holy love. He has holy mercy. He has holy grace. And so what we see is, is that people are uncomfortable with this talk of wrath, of God being angry against sin and doing something about it. 
So what we do is we try to adjust who God is. And we say, I've heard people say this, they say, my God isn't wrathful at all. My God just loves people. And I say, you know what the problem is? Your God isn't real. Because the real God in the Bible, there's wrath there. And it's in both the Old and the New Testament. You see, because that's who he is. And it's a good thing about him. You say, how can you, how can you say God's wrath is a good thing? Where, where, where in your mind can you come across that, Dan? How, how can you think that? Because the problem is when we reshape God into the God that we want him to be without the things that make us uncomfortable, he's not who he is. It's not a complete picture of God. And we cannot, for the life of us, understand the importance of the cross without God's wrath. Take a look at this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He who does not believe that God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it through the blood of his son. You see, you've got to know the bad news before you understand how good the good news is. That's the point of the book of Nahum. It's an amazing, amazing book. Because you see, if we viewed God, viewed alone God's wrath, then it would cause us to fear and dread. But we have to understand God's wrath and the fact that it is rooted in his justice. He is a just judge. That it is rooted in truth. That it is rooted in his holiness and his love. And his love. God's wrath is rooted in love? Yeah, it is. Because the Father's love was displayed at the cross where Jesus was the object of the wrath of God. He was the object of the Father's intense hatred and wrath against sin. The cross. Take a look at God's word again. Hebrews. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, talking about Jesus, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What's propitiation? Right here's the definition on the bottom. A sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God and thereby makes God favorable towards us. That's what that word means. Take a look at it in Romans 3.23. We usually stop at 23, right? We all memorize Romans 3.23, and we stop right there. We'll read a couple more verses. Take a look at this, Romans 3.23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we're all separated from God. Deserving what? God's wrath. That's, that's the point there. And are justified by His grace as a gift. It's not works. It's a gift from God. Our salvation is a gift from God. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, there's that word again, by His blood, to be received by faith. So there's the gospel. We were sinners separated from God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God because God is holy and just. Our sin deserves punishment, which is the wrath of God. What is wrath? Wrath is God's reaction to something that is against his moral character, his holiness, and it carries through with action. 
And so we're separated and the wrath of God is towards us. And so what God did is in his loving kindness, he sent his son Jesus, who lived the perfect sinless life. No sin in thought, word, or deed. He met the requirements of the law for us. Why? Because all have sinned, except Jesus. And Jesus didn't sin. So he met the requirements of the law. Yet he goes to the cross and is punished. The wrath of God towards sin is poured out on Jesus. It wasn't his sin he was being punished for. It was for mine. And I think of the punishment that Jesus went through for me. I can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend it. And he, the wrath of the Father is poured out on Jesus. Why? Because the Father is just. He can't just look the other way. He wouldn't be a just judge. And so the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus for all who would what? Receive the gift of salvation. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough. God doesn't weigh your good deeds against your bad. And if you're good, outweigh your bad. You get to go to heaven. Because you still have the bad deeds. See, that, that never takes care of the real problem. So what happens is that God in his kindness and goodness sends Jesus who meets the requirements of the law, perfectly sinless. And then those who would receive that gift that Jesus would pay for them on the cross, receive that gift by faith in what? In Jesus alone. Grace alone, something you get that you don't earn, through faith alone, believing in something you do not see, and who? In Jesus alone. There's the gospel. And if you look in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What turned God's wrath away from us so that we would be considered favorable? We would no longer be enemies of God, but friends. The blood of Jesus. Propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. That's how it's done, not by works. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He's a just God. He's just. He's not going to let anybody get off. And the justifier, there's the love of God. He provides a way to be right with him through Christ, of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, propitiation and atonement are at the epicenter of God's love. It's at the epicenter. And so what happens is that Nahum helps us understand the necessity of the cross. It helps us see that this is who we are. We deserved God's judgment, and it was going to be total. Just like Nineveh. And God sent his son. Why? Because of love. God sent his son, Jesus, to pay the price that we might know salvation. Nineveh, or Nahum, shows us that there is an end to God's patience towards sin, but that God provided a way to escape that wrath. That's the good news of the gospel and the good news of Nahum. Take a look. Chapter 1, 7 and 8 and verse 15. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Look at this, verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace. Isn't that talking about Jesus? 
in the midst of this chaos and in this city, God says, here, there's peace. There's hope. And it goes on in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the, there it is again, propitiation for our sins. The sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God so that we are favorable in God's eyes. The blood of Jesus. And then 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. The wrath to come. If you're a believer today, that's what Jesus has done for you. He has taken on the wrath of God for you, that you will never, ever experience the wrath of God. Because at the cross is where God's justice, where God's mercy, where God's wrath, and where God's love all came together. They all came together at the cross. God provided a way. And no one who turns to God in faith will ever experience his wrath. Isn't that great news? I mean, you look at what happened to that city of Nineveh, and that was your future without Jesus. I mean, we can't even imagine what hell must be like. And we deserved it because we had violated, we had stood against God in rebellion. And Jesus comes and he provides a way so that we will never experience the wrath of God, but we will experience the blessings of God. Isn't that incredible? I am always amazed. You know, I think of Kyle and Shelley and how, you know, God used them for his purposes down into every tribe. God didn't need to. And then God goes and blesses them. I mean, God, he's such a generous, kind, loving, wonderful God. And what he does is, is he comes in and he says, here, I'm going, to, I'm going to deal with this issue of sin and evil. Okay? I'm going to deal with that. I'm not going to look the other way. Although a Christian will not experience the wrath of God in judgment, we will experience the discipline of God if we continue to walk in sin. And we need to hear that because there's so many Christians that just think it's no big deal. God hasn't done anything yet, so he's not going to do anything. And, and personally, I think... Man, I don't know if I want to sign up for the discipline of God. You know, you say, why would he do that? Why would God do that? Well, because of his love. You say, well, especially if you don't have kids. That's a tough one. But let me ask you this. Don't you get angry when you see someone you love being treated unjustly or hurt? If you really love them, you do. And you get angry, and that wrath rises up. And if there's injustice, you get upset. And you see, God, if we know him, and we are receive that gift of salvation are as children, when he sees us walking in sin and evil, he knows how that hurts us. And his discipline is in love because he doesn't want us to be hurt, and he knows what sin and evil will do to us. He sees the end game. We don't. And so in his love, he disciplines us. He's saying, I don't want you to hurt. I see where this is going, and I love you enough that I'm going to discipline you. And so we see that when those we love are hurt by someone else, or let me put it this way, or they're hurting themselves, right? 
You, maybe you know someone who they just have a problem. They have a huge struggle with something, and you can see the damage that they're doing. And you get mad at them. You say, don't you see what's happening? Don't you get it? Why do you do that? Why, why do you do that? Why do you get upset? Because you love them. And you don't want to see them hurt. And they're hurting themselves. So when we see the discipline of God towards the sin and the evil in our life, it's an extension of His love saying, I know this is going to hurt you. So I'm going to discipline you. I want to turn you away from this. It's an extension of the love of God. No Christian will experience the wrath of God. But God's precious discipline is a manifestation of His love. And so we come to the end of this message and, you know, we realize what did Nahum, the prophet, this book, provide? What did it do? Well, for the people back then and for us, it provides this comfort that in the proper time, everything will be judged righteously. Everything. You notice I didn't do something in the beginning of this message. I always tell you the name of the prophet and what it meant. I didn't give you that to you today. You know why? Because you need to hear it now. You understand this prophecy that Nahum brought to the nation of, or the, the, the nation of the Assyrians, but also to Nineveh. Wow. Heavy stuff. But you know what his name means? Comfort. Isn't that interesting? God sends a prophet with this heavy, heavy prophecy against Nineveh, and the prophet's name means comfort. It's actually a shortened version of Nehemiah, which means comfort of Yahweh. So God sends this prophet, and he's saying, listen, I'm going to send comfort to people who love me and are in the midst of this. That's what he's doing for us. Because sometimes it's so difficult to see what's going on in the world and wondering when will there be, when will there be justice. And it seems like it will never happen. And so we, we, we get this, this acid in our guts, right? And you see the things that are happening. You go, how much longer, God? How much longer? And God says, I'm going to give you comfort in the middle of this. And the comfort is this. I am who I am. I'm a just God. Don't worry. There'll come a time. There'll be a time when this will all be judged righteously. Where it'll all, everything will be laid bare. And so we can find hope in that today. We can find comfort in that knowing that God is sovereign. That there's nothing that is happening that won't be judged righteously. God is going to be God. And we get this thing. It's mentioned in the Word of God. A peace that passes understanding that can come upon us when we trust in who God is, all of who He is, including He is a just judge, and that His wrath will come forth on evil. And we can say, you know what, God? First of all, our first reaction should be, Lord, have mercy and pray for those people that are in positions of authority that are causing so much hurt to so many people and are choosing evil instead of following God's ways. So pray for them. You know, they're no different than you or I. That was the lesson of Jonah, right? That was the lesson of Jonah. 
but to rest in the fact that if their hearts don't turn, then there will be justice. And you know what, God? It's up to you. Your patience and your waiting is for a purpose that they might turn and repent. But if that doesn't happen, there's not one thing that won't be judged righteously. Not one little thing. It gives us comfort that this temporary mercy is not a compromise to the ultimate sense of justice that will happen for all in the end. And this book also, Nahum, also gives us hope. Today, right where we live, that God is good. God is good. And that we can take refuge in Him in times of trouble and injustice. When things happen, that that anger stirs up in your heart because injustice occurred to someone you love, you can rest in the fact that, you know what? God, you're sovereign. You've got a plan. And Lord, I'm just going to rest in you. I believe you're good. And I believe that you are a refuge. When all hell is breaking loose all around me, I trust you, God, no matter what happens. God always took care of his people. Always will. He is faithful to his promises. And Nahum teaches us that. That this nation that so long had shook their fist in the face of God came to judgment. And God judged it. And yet he promises in the middle of this book, I know who my people are. I'm taking care of them. And that's a promise for you and I in the crazy world around us. God, you're just. I will rest in you. My hope is in you. Because of what happened at the cross, because of grace, because of mercy, Lord, I will never face your wrath. That is a great thing. And you see, we have to understand the depth of the bad news before we can really worship God with the good news of the gospel, right? That's the point of Nahum. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a God whose wrath is poured out on sin and evil, that you just don't look the other way, that you don't care. God, thank you. Lord, I pray now for those in this room within the hearing maybe of my voice, if there's someone that's under bondage to the enemy, Lord, with uh, maybe alcoholism or drug addiction, Lord, or pornography, Lord, just bitter spirit won't forgive people. Lord, would you set them free? Would you do a miracle and extend your power by just causing a freedom in those areas that have been they've been bound up in for so long? Lord, bring repentance where repentance needs to happen. God, I pray that uh, you would pour out your spirit upon us, that you would give us a heart for the nations and, and even for the people that maybe in our hearts we are, are looking at and saying, boy, God, you need to judge them. Help us to Help us to pray for them, God. But I thank you so much, God, that you are a God who is gracious and merciful, who is full of kindness, forgiveness, and wrath. That you are who you are, God, perfect in every way. And I ask you now, Lord, to show us who you are 
Help us to embrace all that you are, that we might proclaim the gospel to a dying world, God, so that they might hear the hope that we have and cause that to touch the lives of people around us. I pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship.